The scripture reading for this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You so much for operating in our midst. I thank You that even on a holiday weekend when there's not many people here with us gathering today, that the numbers are really irrelevant because the great and mighty God who formed this church is here with us. And Your Word is here before us. And Your Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us. And You're ready, like a warrior, armed for battle to do great things in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives today. And so I invite you to come and do that now, Lord. I offer myself to you as nothing more than a weak vessel, and I pray that you would take all my weakness now and display your strength by the power of the Word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus, and thank you for what you'll do now. In your great name, amen. From the earliest days of the Christian church, there have been deceivers in our midst trying to deceive us away from the one true and living God. And this fact matters quite a lot to us because truth really matters. For Christian people, truth is not a peripheral subject. It's right at the heart of what it means to be Christians. In most other religions around the world, the particulars of what a person believes is actually not all that important. And in the end, the reason is they're worshiping false gods and false ideologies. And if your God is false and your ideology is false, then what's the big deal if you adjust it from time to time, right? So let's think for a second about Hindus. They say, I've heard from many sources, that Hindus worship somewhere around 300 million gods. So I was thinking this morning and I realized what that means. That means they worship so many gods we have no idea how many gods they worship. I mean, who is taking the time to go around the country and do a census of the Hindu gods? That would be more Hindu gods than there are humans in America, by the way, if you stop to think about it, right? So I don't know how many gods. Hundreds of millions of gods they worship. So the particulars of what they believe are not important at all. 
Believe me, under the banner of Hinduism, everything you could imagine that could be believed is believed. And so if they come and adjust this fact or that historical thing, it really doesn't affect Hinduism at all. All that matters is that you worship something and that you respect others who worship a God different than yours. You see, in India, they don't care that we worship Jesus Christ. They have no problem with that. What they have a problem with is us telling them that Jesus is the one true God and their gods are false. That's when they start killing people. But otherwise, truth doesn't matter much to them because in the end, their gods are all false gods. Let's think about Buddhists for a second. They're different. They're humanists in, in essence. They have rejected the idea of God. They've rejected the idea of the divine. And so it's probably right to call Buddhism a religion, but it is essentially a philosophy. And so for them, the historical details and the philosophical, theological details of their system are really not all that important because it's a lie to begin with, right? You could convince them that Buddha never existed and it wouldn't affect their religion at all because their religion is not founded on true things. It's founded on human philosophical things. Muslims care more about history. They care more about the details of their founder and and, and of, of ours as well. But even the most bright conservative Muslim scholars acknowledge that the Quran radically contradicts itself. I don't mean subtle contradictions. I mean the Quran radically contradicts itself and everybody acknowledges that this is true. And so Muslims have actually come up with a doctrine. I can't remember the name of the doctrine off the top of my head right now. But basically what the teaching is, is that a newer revelation supersedes and outdoes the older revelation. So if last year I got a revelation from God that He's 900 feet tall and bright blue, but then this year I got another revelation that He's actually 10,246 feet tall and bright orange, then the revelation I got today supersedes the one that I got last year. So if you stop to think through this, and by the way, some of the contradictions in the Quran, they're not that ridiculous, but they are that extreme. If you stop to think about a religion that can deal with contradictions like that, what you realize is they really don't care about truth much at all. Truth can be adjusted. And the reason it can be adjusted is because their God is false. Christians, on the other hand, we are the only major religion in the world, along with Jews, who care very much about the historical and theological details of what we believe, and there's a simple reason for that. We believe that we're worshiping the one true God. There is one God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and together they make up the Trinity. They are God. He is God. And therefore, the truth of who He is and what He's done in history really matters. Think about it this way. Imagine that I was an orphan and had never been adopted, never had a family of any kind. So I wasn't comfortable with that. I was embarrassed about that. That wasn't helping me in the world. So what I did was I concocted a story about a mom and a dad that never actually existed. And I would go around telling people the details about how my mom and dad were and how my brothers and sisters were and how I grew up and all all of that stuff. But I had made the whole thing up. If that was true, it wouldn't matter much if I changed the details of my story along the way, would it? Because... I'd be talking about people who weren't actually real. The only thing I'd have to be careful not to do is get caught in lies so that people know that I'm a hypocrite. But if I'm in Carolina one day and tell one story and in California another day and tell a whole other story, it wouldn't matter because there is actually no parents there that I'm actually talking about. 
But if I came from a real family with a real dad and a real mom and real brothers and sisters, which I did, then it would matter very much when I told the story of their lives. I was remembering a, a book that came out about 10 years ago about a guy who had a really bad drug problems, supposedly, and he wrote this book to tell all. And he told all kinds of details about his mom and his dad and his brothers and sisters. And he did it in a big, huge public way. He became part of Oprah's book club. And so that means he sold millions of books. There's only one problem. Almost everything he said in the book was a lie. But his mom and dad and brothers were actual people. And he named them in the book. So this caused some problems. His whole entire family had to stand up and oppose him publicly because he was telling lies about people who were actually there. The only people who care about the details of truth are the people who are actually there. And so the reason Christians care so much about truth is because our God is real. He is true. He is the one and only living God. And therefore the details about who He is and what He's done in history matter very much to us. You probably remember from a couple weeks ago that John wrote this first letter to combat some false teachers who were trying to infiltrate the church and to break the church's fellowship with God and therefore destroy their joy. And so John was fighting to, he was writing, I mean, to fight for the joy of these believers by preserving their fellowship with God. And the way John did that was by warring for the truth. Now, as I have thought about how John went about warring for the truth, I was very touched this week because it just kind of dawned on me how he went about his business and what that means for our daily lives. I don't know how you would think about this, but if I was going to write a letter to a church that I used to pastor and try to help them avoid some false teachers who were leading them away from God, I think I would probably write the letter in the way that I would identify the teachers, I would identify their teaching, and just point by point I would combat what they, what they said. But that's not what John did at all. In a letter specifically written to combat false teaching, he starts off with three other things. And he says, Church, if you want to remain in fellowship with God and experience a fullness of joy, you must confess your sin before God, you must submit your life to God in obedience, and you must learn to love one another. If you don't confess your sins, submit to God, and love one another, you cannot have fellowship with God. And frankly, there's no point in us talking about false teachers because you in that instance will be the problem. I found this very impactful to hear John saying to me, if you care about false teaching, and we should, the first thing we need to do is look in the mirror. I am the main problem. When I sin and give myself to sin, what happens is my ability to apprehend and love and cling to truth is obscured. John, uh, Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 20. He said, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Now, why don't they come to the light? What is it that holds people back who are wicked from coming to the light? Jesus said, lest his works should be exposed. The main reason that we avoid God and don't want to come into the light and believe the truth about Jesus Christ is because we don't want the stuff we're doing in our lives to be exposed because we know it's wrong. You know and I know and every unbeliever knows in their hearts that the things they are doing are wrong. I made all kinds of excuses why I didn't want anything to do with God before I got saved. 
But the truth was, I knew in my heart that if I came to God, I had to stop living the kind of life I was living, and I didn't want to do that. I did not want to do that. Beloved, the root of our unbelief, whether we're Christians or not Christians, is actually rebellion against God. False teaching is not our main problem. If we would confess our sins, submit to the Lord, and learn to love one another, we would have eyes to see truth and error. It would become easy to see. I often think of the difference between like a, like a, a lake around here that are hard, very hard to see through, right? I don't know of any lake in Minnesota that I've been to where I could actually look and see to the bottom. I'm, I'm sure they're there, but I really, really haven't found one. On the other hand, my mom went to Alaska once and she looked down at like a hundred foot crevice and she could see all the way to the bottom because the water was just as crystal clear as it could be. And when we sin, it's like clouding the water of our lives and we just can't see anymore. We can't see the bottom. But if we'll confess our sins, God will cleanse all that stuff out of us and we have an ability to see and to apprehend truth. And so John says, listen, if you're concerned about false teaching and you should be, the first thing to do is look in the mirror. I found I find this very moving, very profound. If we had more time during the summer, I would have, I would have extended the First John series a little bit and made the whole sermon out of this because it's such an impactful point. When you're thinking about false teachers... Go get yourself a mirror. Not just you, but me too. We have to consider our way of life before God because if we're walking in the light as He is in the light, we're going to have eyes to see the difference between truth and error. So with that, we are going to move on and look at verses 18 to 27 today, which is the first time John directly brings up the false teachers in this letter. And we're going to see that as he often does, he cycles through his teaching twice. The first cycle, if you want to call it that, is in verses 18 to 21. And there he identifies to us the origin of these teachers. In other, in other words, he lets us know where they came from, and then he stops to affirm his readers. And then in the second cycle, he goes back in verses 22 to 27 and identifies for us the central theological issue that is the problem with them. And he bids us to take a specific action, which we'll look at later. For now, let me reread verses 18 to 21. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So let me begin by saying a couple words about this word, last hour, this phrase. John is the only one in the New Testament to use this phrase, the last hour. In fact, even in his Gospel or Revelation, he doesn't use it, so he only uses it twice in this letter. But I think he means exactly what other writers mean when they talk about the last days. John is saying that we're in the last days, which means the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That time might seem like it's a long time to us. It's been about 2,000 years, right? But how long is one or 1,000 years in the mind of God? Does anybody remember? It's like a day. Probably even less than a day. So in the mind of God, it's only been two days since Jesus rose again from the dead. This is not a big deal to Him. When you've lived for gazillions and gazillions of years, in fact, you've lived forever, 2,000 years is just a blip on the map. 
We are in the last moment of human history. This is the final act, if you will. The time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And when He comes back, He will not come back to make forgiveness of sin. He will come back for the purpose of judgment, and He will bring all things to consummation. We are in the last days. And John points as evidence of that fact to the fact that there were many antichrists in the midst of the church. Now, in the early church, the people there were taught, and we still are through the New Testament, that there will come a day when a very, very powerful person rises up to oppose Jesus Christ. He probably will be a world political leader, and he will declare himself to be God. And he will force the world to worship him, or have anyone who will not worship him imprisoned, or even worse, killed or tortured. Paul calls this the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's called various things throughout the Bible. But generally speaking, we think of this one great powerful person as the Antichrist. He will, in, an, in essence, be the physical representation of Satan on earth when we get to be very, very, very near to the end. John is not contradicting that teaching here in this verse. In fact, he's affirming that the believers had heard it. But what he is doing is adding a little bit to it and saying that many opponents of Jesus Christ have risen and that these two are anti-Christ. They are against Christ. They are anti-Christs, so to speak. Now, it's somewhat surprising to me that John identifies anti-Christ as human beings. When I hear a term like antichrists, I tend to think of Ephesians 6, which I brought up to Leah this morning, with the spiritual forces and principalities and powers and all of that. When I think antichrists, I think about spiritual forces. But John does not identify them that way. He identifies them as human beings. And then he doesn't identify them as simply anyone who opposes Jesus, but he identifies them as wolves in sheep's clothing who have come from the church itself. I think John would acknowledge that there were more types of antichrist than he was mentioning here, but obviously in his mind the most dangerous kinds were the ones that had come from our midst and had left out from us. There's a saying that tomorrow's liberal is today's evangelical conservative. Where do liberals come from? I've heard the question asked. Answer, from the evangelical church. Liberals are people who rise up from within the church, go astray, and leave the church to lead others astray. And they are the most dangerous kinds of antichrist because they look and feel and smell and talk so much like us. They read our books. They refer to our scriptures. But they twist everything that they teach and they try to lead us astray. So since these are so hard to discern... How in the world are we to tell who the actual antichrists are and maybe the people who are teaching things that aren't exactly right, but they're not antichrists, they just need a little bit of correction. How do you tell who an antichrist is? Well, John is going to say more in a minute, but for now, he gives us one fact. He says that these teachers have broken fellowship with the church. They went out from us. If they had been of us, they would have what? They would have remained with us. And the reason they would have remained with the church is because whoever loves Jesus Christ loves the church for whom He died. The purpose of Christ on the earth is to form for Himself one body, one temple, one bride, and He's going to marry that bride. And if you reject the bride, you reject the groom. 
And so these teachers were not just people who were going a little bit astray on their teaching. They were people who were going astray, but then left the church and came back to oppose the church, to divide the church. They did not remain, but rather they became opponents. Therefore, they are anti-Christs. Now, it is possible to have conflict with the church and not to be an anti-Christ. I'm thinking of like Paul and Barnabas. I don't know if you remember, but in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas were together as a ministry team for some time, and they got into an argument over a young man that was part of their team. And the argument became so sharp that they decided that they could no longer minister together. And so Paul went one way with Silas, Barnabas went another way with John Mark, but here's the thing. They did that in mutual agreement, in a spirit of love. They never actually broke fellowship with each other, they just decided to minister on different street corners, if you will. And they never broke fellowship with the church. They never spoke against the church. They never tried to undermine each other. They were always for each other, even though they couldn't agree with each other at the moment. By the way, by the grace of God, they were eventually able to agree, and Barnabas, as he almost always was, turned out to be right, and Paul turned out to be wrong. They did reconcile their differences. But my point is, they were separated for quite some time. It's possible to have genuine difficulties and issues with the church, and not to be in the category of an antichrist. What antichrists do that are different is they go out from the church and actually come back to oppose the church. They undermine the teaching. They undermine the apostles. They undermine the authority. And they teach false things. So you've got to have two categories in your mind. Sincere people who are having issues, and insincere people who are in fact antichrists. So John will say more about them later, but for now, we need to have these things in our minds. Not every false teacher is simply a false teacher. Some of them are from Satan, and they are antichrists. They're flesh and blood, they have names, wives, families, cars, houses, they look like us, and they're from Satan. That's something that's sobering to me. It's not easy to say, but it's got to be true if the Bible's true. Second, Although there are many kinds of deceivers, the ones that are the most dangerous are the ones who have risen up out of the church and essentially left the church by what they're teaching. I think of people like Joel Osteen, who probably had 60,000 people show up at his church this morning. And he's absolutely a, a deceiver. I think about a guy like Brian McLaren, who rose up from within the evangelical church, within the Brethren Church, and is now just spewing all kinds of lies and hateful things. He's even saying we need to put a moratorium on our position on homosexuality and just just think about it for ten years. He's teaching crazy things because he's left the church. And in my opinion, he belongs in that category of an antichrist. And here's the reason. He hasn't repented when he's been confronted. A person who is truly in Christ but happens to be teaching false things will respond when they are corrected. They will respond. Their commitment will be to truth and not to ego. When a person is confronted lovingly over and over and over again and they will not respond, then we must put them in the category of an antichrist. Now, that doesn't mean that I hate Brian McLaren or Joel Osteen. I pray for their salvation. But let's not mince words about what category they're in because they're outside the church and they are dangerous wolves. By the way, many of you love to listen to internet and radio and TV preachers. Beware. Just beware. They're filled with wolves. With that, John turns his attention in verses 20 to 21 and encourages 
to the church in verses 20 and 21, and he encourages his readers in two specific ways. As I told you last week, I think the pastoral heart of John did not want his readers to think that he thought they were not in Christ. He didn't want them to doubt their salvation. So every once in this, a while in this letter, he stops to affirm them, and that's what he's doing here. And he says two specific things to them. He says, listen, you're not like the Antichrists. You have been anointed. You have been covered. You have been sealed with the Holy One, by which he means, I'm sure, the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of truth upon you. You are in a fundamentally different category than those who are teaching false things. And the second thing that he says is that he's writing to them not because he doubts their salvation, but because he's confident of their salvation. And he knows that because the Holy Spirit is in them, they will be protected from the wolves that are trying to devour them. I think we should take much courage from this, much encouragement from this. Because as I said last week, I think that this church is much like the church that John was writing to. And in my knowledge of you, I think most of you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so yes, there are deceivers in our midst. There are wolves that want to devour us. But take heart. You have the One who is truth living in you. And He will protect you. Heart, body, soul, mind, spirit. He is your great protector. And no lie comes from the truth. The truth is living inside of you. And therefore, no lie will overtake you. Praise be to God. With that encouragement, John now turns back in verse 22 and following to identify a particular theological thing. And I think it will be really important for us to track with him there. So let me read again verses 22 to 27. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So, now that John told us something about where these antichrists come from, where we should have our sights fixed, and by the way, this church probably personally knew the people that he was talking about. When he said they went out from us, they probably were literally a part of that church and went out from that church. So these people knew the Antichrist, and John wanted to point them out and say, you know who I'm talking about. And now that you know who I'm talking about, here is the main thing you need to know about them. They distort their teaching about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. There are so many things that they teach that are false, but fundamental to everything that they teach that is false is a denial of the person of Jesus Christ. And John makes clear here by the verb that he uses in this text that he's not talking about teachers who tempor temporarily might teach a thing or two that's false about Jesus, but again would, would repent if it was pointed out. He's talking about people who in an ongoing manner are teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching false things about Christ and will not repent when they're confronted. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about how this relates to our modern context because 
the false teachers in their day are not the same as the false teachers in our day. So I was asking the Lord to help me see how does the, how do we go from John's world and leap into our world? And it, it just popped out to me very plainly that the, the connecting point is this. The teaching of the Gnostics which John was facing and the teachings which we are facing, which, which are many, have this in common, that false teachers always distort the truth about the person of Jesus Christ. They teach many things that are false. And we could spend hours and hours and hours dissecting all of their teaching and showing how they're wrong at this point and that. But why not just get right to the heart of the matter? They have distorted the truth about Jesus Christ and therefore their whole system falls apart. If you ever find yourself talking with a Mormon or talking with the Jehovah's Witness, or talking with one of these new emergent types that wants to let go of truth and grasp onto experience, don't get into a discussion about all the details with them. Go right to the heart of the matter. What do you think about Jesus Christ? What do you teach about Jesus Christ? I'm telling you, the key to sniffing out an antichrist and false teaching is found right there. If they mess with the doctrine of Jesus, they will mess with every single doctrine that there is. And the heart of their heresy will be found in what they teach about Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, we have to remember these folks come from within the church, and that makes it hard because they know the Bible often. They know how to twist the Bible. So that leads me to a conclusion. Not all of you are going to be theologians in a, in a grander sense. Not all of you are going to go get a degree. Not all of you are going to like to read a lot of books on theology. And you know what? That's okay. Mike and I love writing, reading books on theology. And maybe I just slipped up. Maybe someday I will write a book on theology. Who knows? This first one's taken me seven years to write. So I might get two books done in my lifetime. I really don't know. But not everybody's wired that way. That's okay. But what you have to do is know the Scripture backward and forward. And specifically, the teaching about Jesus Christ. If you have a hard time tracking with the whole Bible, you're wired the way you're wired. What are you going to do? Go to the Gospels, though, and know the Gospels backward and forward. Go to every part of the New Testament that teaches specifically about Jesus and know it backward and forward. I'm telling you, the more you get familiar with the truth about Jesus, the more you'll be able to sniff out false teaching. And you'll be able to sniff out antichrists who will not repent when their false teaching is pointed out to them. It won't make you into a hypocrite or a, a judgmental person. It will make you into a lover of truth who wants the truth about Jesus to shine as brightly as it can. And so maybe you'll hear somebody teaching, and maybe you can't articulate all the reasons why it's wrong, but something in your spirit will say, this is just not right. Something about this is just not right. It doesn't sound, it doesn't smell, it doesn't look, it doesn't feel like the Jesus I read about on the pages of the Scripture. So take courage that you have the Holy One living inside of you and focus on the doctrine of Jesus. I'm telling you, that's the key to sniffing out false teaching. Now, John says of these false teachers that the consequences of what they're doing are very, very drastic. I only want to take a minute to point this out. He says that whoever denies the Son also denies the Father. Whoever uh, rejects the Son, whoever teaches false things about the Son, also rejects and teaches false things about the Father. For us, this is probably a pretty simple point to grasp because we've always and only known Jesus Christ by faith. And we know the whole Bible, so to speak. We know the rest of the story. But you have to understand these original believers 
they lived in the time when Jesus actually walked on this earth and they had to keep being reminded that this physical man that maybe even some of them saw with their eyes was in fact God. And so if you reject the teaching of this man, you need to understand something. You reject God. John is trying to create for these believers an us and them category. And he's saying those false teachers cannot be in the us category because they have rejected Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they have rejected Almighty God. For those of us who are teachers in the church at whatever level, we need to rise up and take heed right now. Because what this means is that persistent false teachers who will not repent when they're corrected are headed for hell. That's what this means. To break fellowship with God means to not be where God is. Right? And if I die out of fellowship with God and teaching in a way that is opposing everything God is doing, He will honor my desires and banish me from His presence forever. And that makes me tremble. It really does. It is no small thing to me that I have to stand here before you week in and week out and break this bread of life before you. I will answer to Jesus for how I handle this Word. And I tremble. If you're a teacher, you should tremble too. It doesn't matter if you're teaching the two people or 20,000 people. It's irrelevant. The Word of God and the stakes are just as high no matter how many people are listening to you. So, teachers, rise up and beware. Having brought all these things out now, John turns to his beloved readers one more time and he gives them just one action to take. In all these verses, he does affirm them, but he gives them only one action to take, and that is... Abide in Him. Abide in the truth. Let the truth abide in you. And if you do that, you will have the Father, you will have the Son, you will be protected from error, you will be brought into eternal life. I take from this that to cling to the truth is to cling to God because God is the truth. And so, as I kind of step back from everything I've said this morning and kind of try to get a bird's eye view of what John is trying to communicate to us, what I see is him saying two main things to us. There are false teachers in our midst, and so here's what we ought to do. First of all, pay close attention to what they teach about Jesus. Other things are important, but they are peripheral. Pay close attention to the doctrine of Christ, or what theologians call Christology. Number two... Cling to the God who is truth. Guard your mind with truth about Jesus and guard your life by clinging to God. The combination between intellectual preparedness and relational unity with God is what will keep us from falling into the traps of false teachers ourselves. Beloved, I am earning an advanced degree right now. In fact, not this week, but the next week I'll be going to Chicago again for another week-long course which is designed for our all of our benefit, not just mine. But you don't have to pursue advanced degrees to be able to spot false teaching and even defeat the teaching of false teachers. Remember John and Peter and James when they were standing before the powers that be in Jerusalem and powerfully defending the Gospel. And the answer of the powers that be was to say, Who are you? Where did you come from? You've never even gone to school and how are you able to defend this so strongly? The same could be said of Stephen and even of the Apostle Paul. What you need is the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You won't have to worry about what to say in that day because He will teach you what to say. So, pay attention to the teaching about Jesus and cling to Jesus Himself. I want to conclude with four very quick thoughts. Number one, 
Do not be passive sheep. Do not be. You are in a war. And that is no joke. There are deceivers right this moment doing everything that they can to deceive the church away from fellowship with God and thus to destroy your joy. Don't be passive about it. You have to look out for yourself. You cannot just leave this to pastors and others to watch out for you. You must be attentive sheep. You must think of yourself as watchmen and watchwomen who have your eyes out. You don't need to be paranoid because your God is a great God. And as John will say later, greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? But you do need to be on the lookout because the way wolves work is they chase the pack and they attack the weak ones. They attack the ones who aren't paying attention. They attack the one who strays off into the woods and right near to their den. So do not be a passive sheep. You need to keep your eyes open and keep your fellowship with God as tight as you can by His grace. Number two, when you're thinking about false teaching, put first things first and join me in looking in the mirror. The most important thing we could do to protect ourselves from false teachers is to confess our sins, submit our lives to God, and learn to love one another. If we'll get our ducks in a row with God and live in the light as He is in the light, He'll help us see the darkness and the false things where they exist. When you do turn your mind to false teachers, focus on what they teach about Jesus. And finally, number four, abide in God and let Him abide in you. Cling to the God who saved you and who will love you all the way till the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, if we will do these things, put first things first, and abide in Him who is the truth, then He will increase our joy all the more day by day until the very day when we see Jesus Christ face to face. And that's the subject we're going to talk about next week. That This is all leading up to the moment where we have the joy of seeing our Master face to face. But for now, let's pray. God, I thank You for being a God of truth. And I thank You for being a God who protects Your children. I thank You for being a God who has sealed us with the Holy Spirit and given us a book to tell us the truth. I thank You for giving us a heart to be so uh, clingy to the Bible at this church. And I pray that we would always do that. I pray that we would never let loose of our grasp on the Word of God because we would then let loose of our grasp on truth. Oh God, please, as we cling to the truth and cling to You personally, I pray that You'd protect us from all of our enemies and accomplish Your purposes in the world. I pray especially now, Father, for those who are under the deceiving influences of Satan. I pray in Jesus' name that whatever the details are, that You would chase him away. And I pray that You would cause the light to shine brightly for the glory of Your name and the joy of their souls. I trust You for this in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.